If you'd remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 23 this morning. Uh, during Advent, we looked at who is Jesus. And we were looking at the Apostles' Creed, the definition that Jesus is Jesus Christ, our only begotten Son, our Lord. Um, as we look forward to the new year, uh, we're going to be skipping ahead a little bit in Jesus' life. And uh, actually, in the book of Luke, between now and Easter, we're going to be finishing off Jesus' life as he's heading towards the cross uh, and ultimately towards Easter to his resurrection and then to his ascension back up to the right hand of God the Father. Uh, this was an event in Jesus' life uh, as he's heading towards Jerusalem. Uh, this is right after the transfiguration. And this is an encounter that he had with his disciples. So this is Luke, uh, excuse me, Matthew 17, verses 14 through 23. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. Now, I may have shared this story with you before, um, but as I was preparing this message uh, this morning, it made me think of it again uh, as Jesus is having this mountaintop experience uh, with the transfiguration. Uh, there was a time in my life where I spent a couple of months in Kenya. Uh, I was during college. I was doing a semester abroad program. Uh, I knew that I'd wanted to go somewhere, and I wanted to go somewhere in Africa because it seemed, um, uh, I didn't know much about it, and it seemed like this rich place that I would uh, love to go. And so I spent uh, about five months in Kenya, and one of the opportunities I had when I was there is to climb Mount Kenya. Now, not the highest peak. Uh, that would require some special equipment, um, but the highest peak that you could actually climb up to without uh, knowing what you were doing, basically. <laughs> so um, the way that God ordained it, 
was that we were able to do it uh, Easter weekend. And the way that our guides planned it was that uh, on Saturday, uh, before Easter, uh, we hiked and we camped early. We went to bed uh, on time, and they got us up in the middle of the night so that the last ascent that we had, we could get to the top right as the sun was coming up. So Easter morning, 2001, I spent on the top of Mount Kenya watching the sunrise from about 17,000 feet. It was amazing. I'm still kind of overwhelmed. I have a picture uh, from my camera. Uh, it was still a film camera. <laughs> it wasn't a digital one. And um, I have a picture of just the clouds. Um, and the sun is coming up. And it is just incredible. Um, every Easter since then... <laughs> has been just not quite as amazing. I tried the next year. I was at my parents' house in Chicago. Uh, I took uh, my, I think it was a lawn chair, out into the parking lot uh, where they, their house backs up to a parking lot of the church and tried to watch the sunrise there as it came over the neighborhood. And it just wasn't the same as uh, from 17,000 feet uh, on Mount Kenya. Um, coming down from the mountain, uh, it's tough to maintain that incredible feeling uh, that you get uh, for a significant period of time. Uh, the feeling itself is hard to replicate. Uh, I feel always coming down from the great season of Advent. Um, that Christmas is over. It's come and it's gone. We didn't light the candles this morning. The tree is probably going to come down this week. Uh, ours will probably come down in our house. Um, it's back to reality in a sense. Uh, it feels that way. Uh, and a, a similar situation happened in the life of Jesus in our passage this morning. So a little context of what is happening, as I've already mentioned. Uh, Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, if you recall the story of uh, the Transfiguration, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up on top of a mountain. The cloud covers the mountain, and suddenly Jesus is in these dazzling clothes, and who would be with him but Moses and Elijah? Moses and Elijah. While he is there, God the Father speaks to them, speaks blessing over his son, calling him his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. For Jesus, this is an incredible moment. God is pouring out His love on him. In a sense, this is, um, can kind of look at it as a, kind of like a pregame pep talk that God is giving to Jesus. Because from here, Jesus is heading down to Jerusalem. He's heading down to His death, uh, to suffering. And so God is encouraging him. He's encouraging His Son. And Jesus, He's pumped up. He's ready to go. And as they're coming down the mountain, literally he's coming back down to reality. There they're met by a crowd of people. A man comes forward and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. The, uh, he has a boy who is suffering greatly at the hands of an evil spirit. It's causing him to have seizures, throwing him in water. Uh, it says the spirit is trying to kill him. And like any loving father, this, this man desperately, desperately wants healing for his son. So there is this stark contrast here between what Jesus is experiencing on top of the mountain and what is happening down below uh, with the disciples and with this man. 
So this man tells, tells us that the disciples had tried to cast it out, but they could not. So while Jesus is up on the mountain, he's got Elijah, he's got Moses, he's got his father speaking to him. Uh, the disciples are down on the, uh, below the mountain, and they're struggling, trying to cast out this demon, and they are not able to do it. It's very similar to the situation of, if you remember Moses getting the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. He is up, he's in the presence of God, there's this cloud that surrounds the mountain, and what are the Israelites doing while he is getting the Ten Commandments? They're building a golden calf. They think that Moses is never coming back. So there's this very stark contrast of, of being in the presence of God and worshiping idols at the very same time. Uh, the disciples are struggling with this evil spirit while Jesus is uh, hearing from his Father in heaven. And as Jesus descends, you can tell that he is a little bit frustrated. Uh, you can sense it in the, the words that he uses. You can imagine his tone in verse 17. He says, Oh, believing and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And he heals him instantly. Instantly. So through Jesus' words here, you can tell that he's got this, this longing. How long will I be with you? He's experiencing the realities of this human world. Uh, last, uh, on Christmas Eve, we talked about the fact that God is with us. That Jesus is the Word become flesh. And when Jesus put on skin, he entered into our world, which is frustrating. And he experienced that here with his disciples. And experiencing the realities of this fallen world fills us with a longing, just like Jesus, to see the kingdom revealed in all its glory. That's why Jesus calls us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. If you read this passage, uh, Jesus isn't the only one that's a little frustrated. Uh, the disciples have this sense of frustration as well. Um, they were surprised that they couldn't heal this man, that they couldn't drive out this demon. Um, and they have a right to be surprised. Back in Matthew 10, verse 1, they had actually been given the power to drive out demons from Jesus. He had given them that power, and they had experienced success in the past. But suddenly something's wrong. It's not working anymore. What's happening? Why can't we do this? They're aggravated. And Jesus very clearly lets them know what is wrong. He says it's their faith. It's their faith. He replies, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, and you know how big a mustard seed it is, very tiny, if you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now we need to be careful here lest we misinterpret these verses. Um, Jesus seems to be saying here that if you have enough faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you can even move mountains. So what Jesus is saying here, obviously he's using metaphor. Uh, he's not saying to us, yes, you can move those mountains from here to there. First of all, why? Why would we move a mountain? 
what would be the point of that? Um, what Jesus is saying here is he's using this metaphor to prove a point. What he's saying is that you can overcome great difficulties in this life. Uh, in Isaiah 40, verse 4, the, uh, the prophet prophesies that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill should be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Through faith, the rough places in our lives will be smoothed out. So here's the difficulty that the disciples are having with the demon-possessed boy. They're struggling in their faith. In reality, when we do have faith in Christ, we can ask for anything that we desire in prayer, and God will answer our prayers. 1 John 5, 14-15 says, This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. The key that John pulls out here is that we ask according to His will. This is how Jesus prayed in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. Uh, a few years ago at our former church, uh, we had one of my former seminary professors, Richard Pratt, come and do our missions conference. Uh, he spoke about global missions and what they're doing with his ministry called Third Millennium Ministries, uh, where they're bringing seminary education to the world for free. Because there's a lot of believers around the world, but there are not many people who are educated to, uh, to lead and to teach. Uh, so what they're doing is bringing theological education to the world for free. And he said one of the biggest issues facing missions today is the spread of the so-called prosperity gospel. That people misinterpret the Bible so that they believe if simply they have enough faith that they can have their best life now. And yes, I do use those words particularly. Um, this is the, the belief that they can have their best life now. A nice house, money in the bank, a new car in the garage, and so much more. I simply need to have enough faith, but we know that this is not the gospel. This is not what Jesus preaches. The little faith that Jesus is talking about here seems to be referring more to the quality of the disciples' faith rather than the quantity. They can have a very small amount of it. A mustard seed size will do. But not if it's poor faith or a shoddy faith. Uh, D.A. Carson in his commentary says this, Jesus tells his disciples that what they need is not a giant faith, tiny faith will do, but true faith, faith that out of a deep personal trust expects God to work. One of the issues facing the disciples' faith is this. It's becoming all too familiar. It seems like they're beginning at this point to expect things to happen. They rightly believe that things will happen. But what are they believing in? They, they seem to be operating on this, uh, this premise of ex opera operato. It's Latin. It means that if they simply do the right things and say the right things, that things will just happen accordingly. By, 
But driving out demons doesn't happen through some sort of magical spell or according to a recipe that we must follow. Uh, The disciples were approaching this particular situation in a very mechanical way, very rote. They were pretty surprised when they realized that they didn't have the same power that they had had before. I'm sure it kind of felt like Samson when he lost his strength, when his hair was cut. Suddenly he couldn't operate in the same manner that he could before. To their surprise, God is teaching them that effectively serving in the kingdom of God is not about formulas, it's not about mechanics, it's about a relationship. It's about a relationship. While Jesus is up high on this mountain with his three, with Peter, James, and John, the other nine are struggling. And what they're doing is that they're losing touch with who Jesus is. And instead, they're relying on their own strength. They're becoming powerless and ineffective. And I see the same thing happening a lot in my life as well. I realize that I often become ineffective in my witness when I don't have a deep and personal relationship with the Lord that is continuing to develop and grow. Because to be in a relationship with God means to be intimate with Him, right? If we are to be in relationship with one another, there's an intimacy that we share there. And the same is true with God. We have an intimacy with Him. You have a desire to live in a way that brings glory and honor to God. I think one of the struggles that we encounter whenever we become Christians for any length of time is this struggle of complacency. Of complacency. Life becomes formulaic. We go to work. We come home. We put the kids to bed. We go to church on Sunday. We do the laundry. Our yard work. We take the kids where they need to go. Uh, Life becomes uh, just very, um, very methodical. We do things because we're supposed to, sometimes forgetting even why we do them. Why? Things become mechanical, and what happens is we slide into this ineffectiveness. And one of the ways that this is evident, and one of the ways it becomes most evident in my life, is in my prayer life. I don't know if you noticed while we were reading, but something was missing from our passage. If you were following along and noticed the numbers, it skipped from verse 20 to verse 22. In the footnote, it records verse 21. And um, in my, uh, my footnote here, uh, it refers back to a, to a passage in Mark. Um, that uh, possibly was here in the translation. Uh, Some manuscripts in the past have had verse 21, but many of them do not. If it was included, this is what it would be. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Jesus was referring to the evil spirit there. So at at, at the distance in the relationship Uh, As this distance in the relationship between Jesus and his disciples widens, one of the first things to go is their prayer. So we can insinuate from this is that the disciples were trying in every way possible, except through prayer, to drive out this demon. And I think that it happens with us too. 
we gradually pray less and less for a variety of reasons. Life gets busy. We don't have the time. Other things are happening. We don't see the point. God doesn't seem to be hearing our prayers. They seem to be dry and rote. And when we do pray, our prayers start to look like grocery lists of things that we need rather than an honest conversation between us and our Father in heaven. And as I admitted already, this is a struggle that I often have. Um, And it's not just our prayers either. It's our entire Christian life. If we're honest, even the good news of the gospel seems to get old sometimes. Uh, If you come over to our house uh, for any length of time, you'll probably hear some music at some point, and at some point you'll probably hear a song from the movie Frozen. That's just the stage in life that we're at right now. Uh, It's either from the radio or from maybe our youngest who who loves to sing Frozen. Uh, You would think that the movie just came out rather than actually coming out a couple of years ago. Um, Frozen has a great soundtrack. It's filled with some great and catchy songs. At least it's a great soundtrack the first 50 times that you hear it. (laughs) After a while, it starts to grate on you. Do you want to build a snowman? No, I don't want to build a snowman. We're done. (laughs) Um, Do you ever feel that way with the gospel? Thinking, yeah, you know what, I've heard this 50 times, and it was great news then, it's getting kind of old now. It doesn't really have that same vigor, uh, doesn't bring that same joy uh, to, my, to my heart as it used to. Yeah, I know that Jesus came, I know that he died, he rose again, I know that I have to believe in Christ. Um, I've heard this. Uh, a very sneaky tactic that Satan uses is to make something so wonderful and so incredible as the gospel become boring and stale and formulaic. Satan would like nothing more than the followers of Christ to become bored with the life-changing message of the gospel. You know, it's impossible for us to be reminded too often of the gospel of Jesus because hearing the good news about Jesus is a lot like eating. We can compare it to eating. You can go for a while without eating, maybe for a long period of time. But what happens when you go without food for a long period of time? Eventually you die. Um, If you ask my kids or my wife what happens when I go without food for an extended period of time, it's not pretty. (laughs) My kids call it cranky. (laughs) Uh, My wife says it's uh, me being irritable. Says, go to the refrigerator and just eat something. Okay, yes, I'm sorry. Um, if we go without being constantly reminded of the gospel, we lose touch with reality. Much like what the disciples did when they lost touch with reality when Jesus was on the mountain. When we aren't reminded of the gospel on a regular basis, we grow in our pride, our selfishness, our gossip, our hatred, our anger. And so much more. You know, this is one of the reasons why we're so often called to meet together regularly. So we can encourage each other and remind one another of the gospel. It's our food. It's our sustenance. It's how we survive. So with Christmas behind us, and it's hard for me to say that, it seems like the Christmas season went by so quickly this year. But Christmas is behind us. And as we look forward now, 
Uh, we're going to start hearing on the radio and advertisements about New Year's resolutions and the top 10 things of 2015 uh, of everything imaginable. Uh, but as we look out on this new year, um, usually uh, a lot of people make these resolutions. I know that if I go to the gym starting in January, it's going to be packed. And it's going to be hard for me to find a treadmill. Whereas now if I go, it's easy. Um, if you're considering making New Year's resolutions, may I have a suggestion for you? Uh, to encourage yourself to remind yourself of the gospel daily as you grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is something that we need on a daily basis. Um, every year, I typically have a different Bible reading plan that I go through. Uh, this past year, I've been going deep uh, into God's Word. I've been reading uh, books of the Bible uh, all the way through multiple times to try to impress them upon my heart. Uh, this year, as I look out on 2016, I'm going to go wide. Uh, I've used in the past uh, Robert Murray McShane's Bible reading plan where you get to read the Bible, uh, the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice throughout the year uh, as you read four chapters a day. So uh, that is going to be my goal this year. And uh, I encourage you as well uh, to find a Bible reading plan as you look out on this new year. It doesn't have to be where you read the whole Bible in a year. Uh, it might be a good challenge for some who have never uh, done that in the past. Uh, it's doable, um, but it does take persistence. Get a partner, your spouse, someone else uh, who can encourage you uh, because it gets long as you're reading through Leviticus and Numbers or through some of the minor prophets. Sometimes it is a struggle. Uh, sometimes we just lose touch and we get so busy that we don't take the time to read God's Word. But as we read God's Word, we're reminded of the Gospel. Take time to pray. Uh, when I pray, usually I journal. Uh, it's a good way for me to do it. Pray with your spouse. Take time in your day uh, to pray with the Lord. Um, also take opportunities to serve uh, in this new year. We see a need. There's so much need around us. See a need and do something about it. I know that by listing these things and talking about resolutions, uh, there's a great danger in this. And I want us to be aware of the danger. Uh, we just talked about the lives of the disciples and how they become formulaic in their relationship with the Lord. Uh, they begin to lose touch with Him. There's great danger in thinking that doing the proper things in the Christian life will lead to the proper outcome. That if we just read our Bible and pray every day, then we will grow in our relationship with the Lord. I remember growing up, there was a children's song. It said, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day, if you love the Lord. So I was thinking about that. Um, it kind of presents a lot of guilt as well. So if I don't read the Bible and pray every day, I guess that means that I don't love the Lord. Uh, and it can create a lot of shame and a lot of guilt in our lives as well. It's like saying, well, if you love your wife, uh, you'll bring her flowers uh, after you come home from work. Well, if I didn't bring her flowers, does that mean that I don't love my wife? Well, no, that's not necessarily true. So here's the, the catch-22. So a relationship with Christ will continue to develop and grow, 
And we need to spend time in God's Word, and we need to spend time in prayer, because that's what consists in our relationship with God. How can we grow and deepen in our relationship with the Lord if we're not spending time with Him, if we're not hearing from Him, if we're not speaking with Him? Uh, We can't do that. But a relationship with Christ can easily turn into formulaic legalism if we are not examining the motives of our hearts and repenting of our sins. So we need to ask ourselves the question, why am I doing this? Why am I reading my Bible this morning? Do I believe that God will love me more because I will read the whole Bible this year? Or am I reading my Bible this morning because I desire to love God more and to know Him better? The answers to those questions uh, create a world of difference. If our actions smack of legalism, even in the slightest manner, may God bring us to our knees in repentance and remind us of the gospel. And the gospel is where Jesus brings us this morning. So as Jesus concludes this uh, situation with the disciples, he concludes by prophesying of his death and his resurrection. He reminds us through his disciples of the gospel. It says, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Jesus is stating the gospel here. This is the good news that we have. They are going to kill him. And he is going to be raised to life. He is going to, through his death, conquer sin and death and hell forever. And he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, and he is reigning in power. Our relationship with Christ starts with the gospel, but it continues with the gospel as well. As is often the case, what we are called to do is to simply to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. May we not be a generation that Jesus says to us, how long must I put up with you? Instead, through faith, may God display his power through us in 2016 and beyond, as we repent of our sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Please remind us daily of the gospel. We need to know on a daily basis that we are sinners in your sight. That we have fallen short of your glory. But because of your great love for us, you have sent your Son, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered and died for us. Who took our place, who suffered the punishment of our sins, so that we might have life. And because of this, we have hope. We don't have to wallow in our sin. Instead, we can confess our sin. We can repent and believe the good news. And because of this, we have life. Lord, we forget this on a daily basis. Please remind us. I pray that as we look out on this new year, 
that we would remember that You have come and that we would long for the day when You will come again and that You will make all things new. Father, we give this year to You. We pray that You would use it for Your glory. Use it for the advancement of Your kingdom in our lives and in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.